everyone. We're Megan and Rachel, and we are here with Professor Brian Ott, who is the author of the Twitter presidency, Trump and the Politics of White Rage. Good morning, Professor Ott. Good morning. I'm glad to be with you. Great. We're glad to have you with us. Um, so just some questions about your scholarly career. Um, you've been studying rhetoric and media for over 20 years and have authored numerous books and essays on the changing nature of communication in the digital era. So the first question I kind of have for you is what drove you to pursue this particular topic? Well, my interest in rhetoric and its relationship to communication technologies arose pretty early in my graduate education. I was working on my master's thesis and analysis of George Herbert Walker Bush's 1992 State of the Union address. And I quickly realized that I could not give an adequate account of the speech without attending carefully to the medium. Uh, to the underlying communication technology by which most people actually encountered the speech, which in this case was television. So I, I turned to the work of media ecologists like Walter Ong, Marshall McLuhan, Neil Postman to understand the always mediated character of rhetoric. Postman's book, Amusing Ourselves to Death, Public Discourse in the Age of Show Business, which looks at how public discourse is transformed when it's filtered through the technology of television, was especially influential to me at the time as were two observations made by the literary critic Kenneth Burke. First, that discourse functions as equipment for a living. And second, that the conventional forms of discourse in one era are as resolutely shunned by another. So I ended up pursuing all of these lines of thinking in my doctoral dissertation, which explored how emerging televisual forms equipped people to confront the rise and the social anxieties associated with the information age. So more recently, I've been drawn to the spread of social media and how much like television did decades ago, it has been transforming the nature of our discourse and in particular, our political discourse. Absolutely. Yeah, I totally agree. I think Twitter, especially Twitter and as well as all other social media platforms have definitely had quite the impact on the political atmosphere of our nation. So just last year, you published your book in 2019, The Twitter Presidency, Donald J. Trump and the Politics of White Rage. I thought it was a very interesting read, and it really made me look back at the president's tweets. What prompted you to write this book? I was drawn to writing about Trump's rhetoric as much because of his preferred modality of communication, Twitter, as by anything he was saying at the time. As the 2016 U.S. presidential campaign unfolded, I realized that Twitter and social media more generally had come to supplant television as the primary technology through which political discourse was being filtered. Now, I, I believe that all communication technologies are inherently biased, meaning that they do some things well and other things not so well. So I wanted to understand the biases of Twitter to, to map, as it were, how the platform itself alters the character of public discourse. And I chose to analyze Trump's Twitter account simply because he was the platform's most infamous user at the time. But I also recognized that Trump's tweets were resonating with a large segment of the American public, which prompted me to look more closely at what I see as a fairly strong resonance between the content and form of the president's rhetoric. Yeah, absolutely. And why do you think it's important for the public to be informed and understand the rhetoric behind his tweets? 
Well, I'm a big believer that rhetoric matters. And when I use the word matters, I mean that in both senses of the term. On the one hand, rhetoric matters in the sense that it is consequential. It shapes opinions, beliefs, and actions. At the presidential level, it directly impacts public policy, foreign relations, and our national character, among other things. On the other hand, rhetoric is itself material. It is made up of matter energy, which moves and sways us at an affective bodily level. It is the medium of communication that always makes rhetoric material, whether it be the sound of the human voice, the light and sound of cinema, or the stone of ancient hieroglyphs. So to fully understand Trump's rhetoric, I maintain we must attend both to its consequentiality and to its materiality. I never really thought much about the rhetoric behind Trump's tweets. You know, I'd, I'd read them and kind of understand what he was saying, but I never actually fully thought about the rhetoric behind tweets. And, you know, like you said, the two, the two meanings of it and looking deeper into um, what, what was being stated behind just the words that were being read. So I think I'm going to turn it over to Rachel now. She has some questions for you as well. Hi, I'm Rachel. And thank you for sharing your career experience. And I have a question about the article. There is no doubt that Trump used Twitter a lot to communicate to people, but he doesn't tweet in a professional manner, unlike former President Obama. So how are his tweets so popular? And is it possible that Trump is only tweeting to his supporter and not the general public? Great question. So I, I think Trump's tweets are popular precisely because they are unfiltered. They are interpreted by his followers. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use the term followers, which in addition to being the nomenclature of Twitter, is also a more accurate behavioral description than the term supporters, in my opinion. In, in any case, Trump's followers interpret his tweets as honest, as untainted by the apparatus of public relations. And I would tell you that his followers are correct which is precisely why Trump's White House is consistently playing cleanup around his tweets. President Trump has been quite explicit about the fact that he sees Twitter as a means to address his followers directly without his messages getting filtered through the news media. So yes, I, I would say his tweets are targeted primarily to his followers. Yeah, I, I agree what you say. I, I hear some similar opinion like Trump's tweet is honest to the people that he tried to say the truth and what he think about. And then I have a follow-up question. Do you think that Trump tried to curate his tweets to have a rhetorical effect? Or do you think he simply tweets freely? That the president's openly racist rhetoric on Twitter has emboldened, for instance, white supremacist groups. So I don't think he curates his tweets, but that doesn't mean that I also don't think that they function strategically. I kind of have a follow-up question to kind of mentioning that you do believe that he does tweet to his supporters. So why do you feel that his supporters tend to justify his Twitter habits? I think they defend his Twitter behavior because they see it as authentic and also because they openly say the racist and sexist things that they think and that they desperately want to say. So look, tr Trump's followers feel aggrieved at the decentering of white privilege. He captures that cultural sentiment and he projects it back to them. 
And so there's a, just a powerful sense of identification there that they feel compelled to defend. That's super interesting. I've always kind of going back to what you said about how he is, he's openly racist on Twitter and the comments he makes are very, very open. And he kind of says what he has to say with no filter. So I think that that's very interesting how you explained that they tend to justify his tweets as almost a relatability thing. I think that's super interesting as far as the public mindset goes. You say that Twitter kind of favors this impulsive speech and does not encourage reflection. So I have a question about, did doubling the character limitation on tweets from 140 to 280 in 2017 contribute to this structural bias towards this impulsivity? Generally speaking, I I regard the change in Twitter's character limitation, the expansion from 140 to 280 characters, as relatively inconsequential. I I think, as as I've already stated in the interview, as I've I've already kind of um, highlighted, it's important to understand that every medium of communication has its own biases. And those biases are a product of the unique defining features of that particular technology of communication. And I don't think that there's a significant difference between 140 uh, characters and 280 characters. So I don't think it's had a huge influence, it still ensures that the tweets are defined by their simplicity. And while it is certainly possible to be witty and clever on Twitter, and in fact, I I think the platform actually sort of privileges that kind of speech, structurally, at the same time, it disallows complex and sophisticated messaging. This is the main reason I don't think that our politics should live on Twitter or social media, because The platforms of social media, and Twitter in particular, aren't well suited to effective public deliberation, which requires complexity. The world and all of the issues that we confront today in our world, particularly in the context of COVID-19, are complex, and they require complex solutions to address them. So my sense is that the character change was not a significant shift and and still the platform privileges simplicity. Great. And because Twitter does not allow for kind of this complexity of deeper issues, would you say that it's easy for certain tweets to be taken out of context sometimes? I think sort of by definition, the content that appears on Twitter lacks context. If you're only tweeting 280 characters at a time, or even the most recent sort of change in the president's behavior, which is retweeting others, you're really just grabbing snippets of news or snippets of interviews, and you're posting them without context. So I think you're absolutely right that largely one of the forces or factors that's at play in relationship to a communication platform like Twitter is that it decontextualizes information. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. I think I'm going to turn it back over to Rachel now. She has a couple more questions for you. We read some article that other authors discuss about Trump's uh, unique style, and then they discuss, have written about Trump's unique style and how it can be interpreted rhetorically. Catherine Chaput has discussed Trump's appeal to emotion through a form of neoliberal branding. How do you think the impulsivity provided by Twitter interact with this trend of appealing to emotion? 
In my own work, uh, I prefer the term affect to emotion because I'm compelled that emotion is an individual experience and that affect is a collective experience. Now, there's no doubt that those two concepts, emotion and affect, are closely related to one another. Let me try to clarify what I see as the distinction between them. When someone experiences an emotion, let's develop a hypothetical here. When someone experiences an emotion like anger, for instance, that anger is theirs and theirs alone. Other people around them might observe that. They might even sympathize or empathize with them. But we don't actually experience their anger. If we happen to also feel angry, then that anger is ours. So anger, or, or, or any emotion for that uh, matter, is really a, a very impersonal experience. Affect, which is a, a, a slightly different concept, affect by contrast is publicly shared. In fact, it's decidedly public. Now in the book, The Twitter Presidency, uh, which is co-authored with Greg Dickinson, he, he and I um, discuss white rage as an example of public affect, as a very broadly shared cultural sentiment that is rooted in the feelings of grievance over the decentering of white privilege. This, we contend, is the central affective appeal of Donald Trump's rhetoric. Yeah, I think the affect will impact more people and also yeah, I, I think Trump tweets a lot and he he can actually influence other people thinking the same way. Yeah, I agree with you. And I have a follow-up question. Transitioning from Trump's pay, uh, pathos to his ego, Rhetoric Hart describes Trump as an emotional revolutionary because he publicly displays quality that are distinctly American and that resonate with many Americans. According to Hart, Americans are impulsive. So Trump's rhetoric reflects something about our own character. Should we therefore attribute Trump's impulsivity to the media or to our national ethos? It goes back to the observation from Kenneth Burke that I, I shared at the very beginning of our time together today, and, and Burke's idea that the conventional forms of public discourse in one era are as resolutely shunned by another. So I, I concur with Hart that impulsivity is central to our national ethos. The question to my mind is why, and more particularly, why now? And this is where I think the evolution and the development of communication technologies matter so much to our understanding of what's happening in the world that we currently inhabit. Look, the, the invention of writing and later the printing press gave rise to the literate mind. Similarly, uh, television gave rise, for instance, to image politics. And now social media is giving rise to a, a whole bunch of characteristics that define our current moment, not the least of which is impulsivity. And I would add, I think, another important dimension of that is incivility. And so for me, impulsivity and incivility, which both um, characterize the national ethos right now, are both products in the changes of our use of 
communication technologies and particularly the filtering of our political discourse through those communication technologies. And so as we, as we do our politics more and more through a medium like Twitter, our discourse itself begins to take on the characteristics of that medium. Yeah, I have kind of a question from the topic that we were just discussing um, about the different mediums. You mentioned the printing press, and then we had television, and now we have Twitter. And I think it's it's um, interesting that you mentioned how, you know, the invention of television sort of gave way to this um, uh, image politics. So how would you say that have politicians felt the need to be more honest within this medium? Or do you feel that it has sort of made them less honest? <laughs> That's a very difficult question. Um, and it's, it's, it's made more difficult by the fact that I, I think we're in a period of transition at the moment. Anytime there is a revolution in communication technologies, where one communication technology comes to supplant another communication technology, as the privileged way we communicate, there's necessarily a period of cultural adjustment. And so some people treat the new medium in as though it were just an extension of the old media. And so if you go back to uh, President Barack Obama's use of social media, it really was dominated by a public relations frame and it was, it was used in such a way to perpetuate the image politics of television that were still the prevailing set of political operations at that time. Then along comes someone like Donald Trump, where to, to my mind, there's sort of this natural affinity between the way he speaks and his use of, and, and this technology and the biases of this technology. And so he, he sort of took advantage of what the technology does and moved us in that direction. All of that is by way of saying that I'm, I'm not sure that when we're in the period of a transition from one communication technology to another, and in this case, really, the transition from a televisual moment of politics to a social media moment of politics, that everyone is using it uniformly. I do think the technology over time will continue to exert its force and its biases with greater ubiquity. And so what we're seeing happen with Trump if we continue to conduct our politics on Twitter will only be intensified. Yeah, completely understand that makes, um, that makes a lot of sense. You said that Trump used simple language during the Republican primary and he also uses simple structural sentences in his tweets. So is there a correlation or structural similarity between the way he speaks and the way he tweets? Yes. So as you, you know, I, I touched on this very briefly a moment ago. Look, Do Donald Trump is not a deep thinker. He, um, he lacks cognitive complexity and ability to be reflective and the capacity to process sophisticated ideas and information. So not surprisingly, Trump's discourse during the 2016 uh, U.S. presidential campaign reflected, and, and this has been documented in study, it reflected a fourth grade level of speaking, which is the lowest of any candidate during the 2016 campaign by about four to five grade levels. President Trump thinks, and thus he speaks, in very simple sentences. His discourse is often, often rambling, but it's highly repetitive. 
all of this translates pretty effectively to Twitter, which invites simple discourse. And, and we shouldn't confuse simple with clear in this particular instance. So simple expression is not always clear expression. And, and Trump certainly falls into the category of simplistic thinking and simplistic speaking, where there's a strong structural similarity between the two, but it doesn't um, translate into clear speaking. Do you think that this simplicity that he uses, in addition to the kind of relatability that you mentioned that his followers sort of gravitate towards within his tweets, do you think that this simplicity that he uses also draws people to his tweet? Yes, absolutely, I, I believe it does. Trump's base is overwhelmingly white voters without a college degree. He speaks like they do, and that, as Kenneth Burke has noted in another context, is really the basis of identification. And if I can link what I'm saying right now to a point I made earlier, I would note that Kenneth Burke's central term with respect to rhetoric, his central term is identification, may actually have more to do with affect, which as I've, I've already indicated is central to how I think, how I think uh, Trump is so effective as a rhetor with his followers. Identification is more closely connected to affect than Aristotle, for instance, central term with respect to rhetoric, which was persuasion. So. I think Kenneth Burke gives us a much clearer framework for understanding how Trump appeals to his followers than thinking about it purely in terms of rational logic or persuasion. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that's a super interesting point to make. So I'm going to turn it back over to Rachel now. You wrote this book not long after Trump was elected. Now we are approaching the next election. Do you think that Twitter is still working as a suitable media ecology for his rhetoric? Sure, I, I do. I, Trump, Trump is absolutely at home on Twitter. It allows him relatively direct, unfiltered communication with his base, with his followers. That communication um, resonates with them. If something has changed since 2016, it is with Trump voters who I would be careful not to confuse with Trump followers. Trump voters are those people who sort of reluctantly cast a ballot for him, but have no particular affinity for him. While Trump followers demonstrate sort of a mindless cult-like allegiance to him. The latter group, of course, constitutes his base. And this is why his approval rating really never drops below 40%. And if it goes below 40%, it, it never goes far below 40%. Trump voters are, uh, Trump voters, again, not, not followers, the people who voted for him but aren't strictly followers, Trump voters are not fans of his Twitter use. And they have even less favorable opinions about it now than they did four years ago. All of that is by way of saying that Trump will continue to use Twitter, a medium that allows him to speak directly to his base and to energize that group of people to turn out in mass in the next election. Yeah, I think we have one more question for you. Um, so during this modern era, as we kind of approach the next election, as we mentioned earlier, um, Trump is both a candidate and a current 
sitting president, um, have qualities from his candidacy reappeared in his tweets or has Twitter, has his Twitter habits, have, have his Twitter habits remained relatively presidential in his recent tweeting? Yeah, good, good questions. It, and this is also sort of a complex, difficult question. Be, and let me, let me explain why and, and wait, wait for it because I'm, I'm going to agree with the president here. <laughs> There, there's, a, there's a very real sense in which if, as Trump once noted, he does something, then it is by definition presidential. This is, in my judgment, the fundamental threat that Trump poses to democracy and its institutions. He is literally altering the norms of what is accepted and acceptable. Few things concern me more than the fact that increasingly, it appears to me at least, people barely notice his bad behavior, his racist, sexist rhetoric, his lack of empathy, humanity, and decency, his utter disregard for the rule of law, his disdain for the Constitution and the separation of powers, his unyielding assault on democratic norms and institutions. Trump has literally reshaped the presidency in ways that ought to be deeply disturbing to all of us. It's simply too soon to see how lasting those changes will be. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that um, that's a great point. I've never actually kind of thought about, as you, uh, as you started to answer the question, the first comment you made about um, how anything he does is technically presidential. And I think that that is quite disturbing considering the rhetoric and just the words of his tweets sometimes are, are flabbergasting. I'm like, what, <laughs> what are you saying? So I think that, that that's definitely, it is disturbing. I mean, to see that he technically is reshaping what is acceptable to um, democracy. And, and that's something that I think as we go into the next election, hopefully people will be, um, will be thinking about. So thank you so much, um, Professor Ott, for being with us today. We really, really appreciate it. We loved having, getting to have this conversation with you. So Rachel and I would like to thank um, our group members, Steffi, Srivali, Phoebe, and Evelyn, the University of Texas at Austin, Professor Longacre for making this interview possible, and once again, Professor Ott for being here with us today.